Just remain standing just for a second and let's go back and sing the doxology that we sang earlier and get ready to pray. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Think about the words. Praise Him all creatures here Amen on it. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted us to do that because we looked at the Apostles' Creed that's been used for hundreds of years by believers. And then we just sang a song that's been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years by believers. And it reminds us that Whatever generation we're in, whatever race we are of, whatever situation we may find ourselves in, and whatever nation we belong to, we have a stronger bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about people that live before us, we are in the same body that they are. And those who have gone on to heaven before us, we're in the same body with the same Lord that they are, and we are truly one in the bond of love. And so today as we pray, I want us to do what the book of Hebrews commands us to do. And we tend to forget about this. It says that we are to remember those who are in chains. I think about what's going on in Afghanistan today. I think about it from a military standpoint. My father was a veteran of Vietnam. When I think about all of that and the 58,000 men who died in Vietnam, my question is, why? I don't do anything to disparage them. They should be honored for their service and their sacrifice, for sure. But from a political standpoint, why? Because Vietnam is communist today, and that's supposedly what we were fighting against. Why? And I kind of had those same feelings stirred up with Afghanistan. Had I lost a loved one in Afghanistan, and my brother was to be deployed to Afghanistan and just barely missed it, he lost friends over there. I've got a nephew now who is in the Air Force, and uh, he is in the supply unit that uh, gets all of the materials and munitions and everything else that they need and he's lost friends over there and then you wonder why you wonder why what was the point what was the mission what was going on and so I do think about that and I can't help but think about the Afghani people and I think about what does this mean for them What does this mean, the Taliban ruling over them? What does this mean for them? What does the future hold? I'm a fellow human. I can't help but think about that. And then to be grateful that I don't live under that kind of a system. But then I go even further to what the book of Hebrews says. And I go, what does this mean for Christians? Our brothers, our sisters in Christ that are over there. 
And I feel compelled today to pray. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Father, we have brothers and sisters all around the world that we've never met. Thank you that we'll see them one day in heaven. But as for now, we could pass them on the street and would have no idea that they're an heir of the king, have no idea that they've been washed in the blood of the lamb, have no idea that they are brothers or sisters in Christ. But I thank you, Lord, that you know who they are. And as we consider what they're going through in Afghanistan, we want to pray. We want to pray for those pastors, for those elders over there. Lord, what are they supposed to do? And how are they supposed to do it? To what extent are they supposed to do it? Lord, I'm sure they're wrestling with, should I escape? Should I stay in hiding? Do I come out and stand up and risk death? Do I give my life? What are they supposed to do? When are they supposed to do it? How are they supposed to do it? And I think about the brothers and sisters that are in churches all over that land. I know they're a minority. And I know they have been persecuted. And they certainly will be under this new situation. And I pray for them. They may be family members of loved ones who were in prison for doing nothing more than what we're doing this morning. Bless them and care for them. Give them peace. Give them hope. Remind them that they are citizens of heaven. And remind them of the fact that all of us are going to die. And then when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord and fill them with hope. Lord, if there's any way that they might have freedom like we enjoy to propagate the gospel, to study the word of God, to be and live as Christians, we would pray for that. But that doesn't seem to be anything that's going to be immediate. And so we pray for them. Help them to stand strong, not to deny the faith. Help them not to become fearful, but help them to be bold. Help them to be wise. Meet their needs. And help us, Lord, not to forget them. Not only there, but I think about in China. I think about in North Korea. I think about in Cuba. I think about in Vietnam. I think about in Saudi Arabia. I think about in Iran and other places like that where Christians are suffering so badly. Please forgive us for our complaints that seem so petty. And we pray, Lord, that you would build up our church so that we would be prayer warriors for those who are in chains. And thank you, Lord, that you're blessing us even now for obeying your word. And we thank you so much for the freedoms that we enjoy. We thank you for the material possessions that we have. We thank you for the friendships that we have. We thank you that we can gather freely like this. We thank you for the medicines that we have and the knowledge that we have. And we remember to pray for our own people who are suffering, who are grieving, who are sick. But don't let us in the midst of all of that forget about the lost and forget about our mission. And don't let us forget about our brothers and sisters as they suffer. And we pray this because it glorifies you. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Don't forget them, folks. Don't forget them. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the 28th chapter of Exodus. We've got a lot of ground to cover here, so we will uh, try to get 
that done. And uh, I'm reminded as I look at this, as we have made a, a statement uh, so often as we go through Exodus, that the Bible says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law. But we don't typically think of wondrous things being in the law, just a bunch of rules, just a bunch of regulations, and things like that. But the book of Hebrews once again informs us, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. It's a shadow. Now, you don't have a shadow, first of all, unless there's light. And secondly, there has to be something that the light is shining on that makes a shadow. You don't have, air doesn't cast a shadow, for example, or it'd be very difficult to light this building, wouldn't it? Shadows are cast by real living things or beings like us or inanimate objects like the chairs or something, a, tr uh, a tree or something like that. And uh, what are they? The shadow is just, I can see my shadow up here, you can't, but I can. It is just simply a copy of the real thing, okay? Copy of the real thing. And so whatever we find in the law of God, in the rituals, in the ceremonies, in the, uh, uh, the tabernacle itself, and the furnishings, and in the clothing we're going to look at that Aaron wore. These are copies of the real thing. In other words, they're pointing us, and we've got to be smart enough and sharp enough to see this through the Holy Spirit's work, to be able to see that this is pointing us to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because this is so long, I'm not going to read all of it, at this time, but I'm going to make the point and then call your attention to the scripture to where that point comes from. And so as we look at all of this, Moses in his typical fashion, which was also typical for Hebrew writing, he states something and then describes it. For example, you go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's pretty tight and succinct. And then he spends a lot of verses after that telling how he did verse 1. Okay, So he gives you the topic, tells you where you're going, and then goes into detail describing it. Well, two weeks ago, when I wasn't able to be here and did the video for you, we looked at the fact that Aaron's clothes are being made. Now Moses is going to do, in typical fashion, tell us in great detail how it is to be done. And of course he does this because this is the instruction that comes from God. And if it does testify of a reality, if it's but a shadow, we've got to look a little deeper than just at the cloth or the pattern that it was made in. What is it really telling us about our great high priest? Because you need a high priest and there's not one on earth to be found. But there is one in heaven. There is one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. There is one that is the perfect high priest, the permanent high priest, the infallible high priest, the one who has offered the perfect once for all sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ. So what do Aaron's high priestly garments tell us about the true high priest? Well, the first thing we're going to notice, it tells us about his nature and his work. His nature and his work. Look at verse 6. And they shall make the ephod, that's one of the priestly robes, of gold, of blue, of purple, 
and scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. In other words, if you were to look at my jacket, you would look up here on the shoulder and you find a seam. And it's sewed together and that's what holds this jacket or my shirt together. Thank the Lord for that, right? But in this, the high priestly robe, it was not sewn together like that. There were two pieces, a, a, a bracket, a coupling or something like that that would be on each shoulder. And you find that also that it's the, the fine linen that's woven together. And it also, you notice, is gold. Now that's not just the color. That is talking about literal physical gold being woven in to that linen. And each one of these things speaks of something about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gold that is interwoven into that fabric that would give it a little bit of strength. And they would also give it a sheen and a shimmer, if you can imagine what it would look like, speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. It reminds us he's more than a human, more than a man. And like in all of these things, God is very careful to give us a symbolism that always points us to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is God. Now, how did they get gold into the fabric? Well, Exodus 39.3 tells us, and they hammered out gold leaf, that's real thin gold, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. This is quite a, a feat of workmanship, if you think about it. Hammering it out to the thinnest point it can be and making threads that can be woven in with the colors and with the linen here. And the colors also tell us about Jesus because it tells us about the humanity and purpose of Christ the Messiah. Blue, he is the one who came as God incarnate from the heavens to us. The purple tells us he's the ultimate royalty, king of kings and lord of lords. And not only that, he is the legitimate heir to the throne of Israel because he is the son of David. It also tells us in the scarlet about his work on the cross as he shed his blood as the full payment for our sins. So you and uh, I could look at the high priest and see something that the people of that day could not see because we would see it all as being a shadow or a symbol of the real thing. And that is Jesus, who is our real high priest in heaven today, our sympathetic high priest. Secondly, you'll notice as we go down to verse 8, that it tells us that the real high priest is our burden bearer. You got any burdens? You ever had any burdens? Well, the greatest burden you had is a burden you were born with and didn't even recognize until salvation, and that is the burden of your own sin. In Exodus 28, verse 8, it says, And the skillfully woven band, actually that should be a belt. King James says girdle. Okay, It's the belt that they would cinch up everything with. And the skillfully woven band on it, shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? And fine twined linen. And you shall take two 
onyx stones. Now, before we go any further, these are different than onyx stones we have now. We don't know exactly what it is, but they use that name for a stone that was much more valuable. Onyx stones are not really all that valuable. And also, it was a stone that uh, other passages talk about it's, it's shining brightly. And the onyx we have doesn't do that. So it was some other kind of stone and uh, with the same name. And what do you do with these stones? Well, it goes on to say, you engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Now, Israel and Jacob, same thing. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stones in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. And you shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall, now look at this, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Now notice that one part about him bearing the names of Israel before the Lord. I remember back in the 80s, Scott Wesley Brown had a song speaking of Jesus, and it says, If he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, and I know my brother, he will carry you. And uh, that came to mind when I was talking about this, because when we talk about the shoulders here and the emphasis of these onyx stones with the names of Israel, uh, Israel's sons, on the shoulders, we think about what uh, do the shoulders represent and why were they put on the shoulders well if you've ever been in the military and you had a backpack well you know there's a reason why you didn't carry it like an old-fashioned suitcase you wouldn't make it very far there's a reason why it wasn't attached somewhere else why do they put it on the shoulders shoulders are the strongest part of your body and you can carry weight on your shoulders that you couldn't carry anywhere else the weight on the shoulders and the names of the sons of the children of Israel on the shoulders emphasize that as Aaron would bear their names into the holiest place, he was bearing the weight of their sin, their failure, their inadequacies, everything they had done to break the law of God. And he would bear that in there to the Holy of Holies as he made the sacrifice before them. And the Lord is the one who bore the weight of our sin on the cross of Calvary. He is the one who paid for our sin, who took it all upon himself. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible says. And can you imagine what that must have been like for the dear Son of God, the innocent, sinless Son of God, that in a moment of time, all of a sudden, all of your sin all of my sin, all of that put upon him. No wonder he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And only he, as the infinite son of God, could bear that. And so the names of Israel's sons on the shoulders of the high priest remind us of our sin 
and inadequacy and failure and our lostness, our deadness being put upon Christ when he died upon the cross. When I think about the uh, next thing that comes up, um, I'm not going to read every bit of that, but the Bible says that uh, Jesus Christ also, let me catch up here, is our representative or our substitute. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at verses 15 through 30, he tells him that you shall make a breastpiece of judgment. Of judgment. That's an interesting term. In skilled work. And uh, he was supposed to make this, and it's made like the ephod with the same colors, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. God uses those a lot. Has them put them together, and it's a big square, and uh, he tells them about its size, uh, a span in its length, and a span in its breadth, and then set it in it four rows of stones. Now, this is going to cover the chest. And so this piece of gold that is in this square, four rows of the stones. And each stone represents a tribe of Israel, and he tells us what those stones are. And you'll notice that as they are put there, it's uh, close to the heart of the priest. Close to the heart of the priest. And Aaron goes in to the Holy of Holies, and he carries their name and all of their sin. He carries it close to his heart. And uh, as the Lord talks about this, you get down near the end of this section of Scripture and uh, it, it says something here that I find striking that Aaron did that is very similar to uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us and not only did, but is doing for us. And uh, what, what is it that he's doing? And it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. On his heart. When you think about the Lord Jesus and you think about him going to the cross, he told his disciples at one point in the garden, my soul is encompassed with grief. And that word encompassed in the Greek New Testament, it is saying surrounded. He was engulfed with grief. What was the grief from? Simply that he was going to die? Well, I'm sure like any human, the thought of death was not a was not a pleasant one. Was it maybe the cross? Well, I'm sure, like anyone, the, the thought of going to the cross was not something that you wanted and looked forward to. But that was his assignment. That was his assignment. What was it that caused the Son of God to be encompassed with grief? And I think it was because of the weight of our sins coming upon him and him feeling it and it was breaking, literally breaking his heart as he thought about all of that. And what a great Savior to be willing to take your sin and my sin upon himself, to be encompassed with grief, to be that man of sorrows that Isaiah predicted so that as he went to the cross, he took it seriously, he paid for our sins in full, and that the names of everyone who would believe were close to his heart 
and their sins were paid for in full. Nothing was left out, nothing was left to us, nothing that we can add to it, nothing that we can take away from it. It was all paid for in full by him, just as Aaron bore that on his chest next to his heart, so the Lord bore it before uh, God on the cross of Calvary. And he calls it the breastpiece of judgment. And he talks about the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, no idea what that is. And uh, it says, And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And sometimes I think when we talk about the cross, we forget that Jesus, yes, he was going for us, but not primarily for us. He was going in the presence of God for the glory of the Father to fulfill the will of the Father. Remember in the garden he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done because he was dying for the glory of his Father, dying in obedience to the Father, which does include us in paying for our sins, but he's dying at the hand of his Father. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says, it pleased the Father to bruise him. What is going on with all of that? Well, he's paying, of course, for our sins, and he is the bearer of our sins, and he goes before God on the cross, representing us as sinners, becoming sin for us, taking our sin, bearing our sin, and he knows exactly what he is doing. Just like Aaron knew the names of all the tribes of Israel that were on his breastplate and the stone that represented them, so the Lord Jesus knew you, and he knew the sins that you would commit, and he paid for all of them, and he paid for them in full, and he did it before the Lord, these stones of remembrance. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's in 1 John. In Hebrews 7.25 it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, the good news is that he not only represented me on the cross and took the wrath and the punishment for my sin, but he's doing the same today in heaven. In his high priestly work, he knows me. And when I sin, he prays for me. When I go through a trial, he prays for me. When I'm weak, he prays for me. When I am getting too full of myself because of my victories, he prays for me like he did the Apostle Peter. I'm on his mind. You're on his mind. And Psalm 139 says that his thoughts toward us are precious and they outnumber the sands of the sea. You're on the mind of Christ today. Your high priest loves you and he is representing you in heaven as he defends you when you sin, your advocate, and he prays for you at all other times. Number four, notice that this high priest... The way he was dressed showed that he is official. Nobody else dressed quite like the high priest dressed. There were other things that the regular priest wore, but not quite like the high priest. And also, 
not only official but fruitful. If you'll look down in verse 28, it says, You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, like an undershirt or something like that, with a woven binding around the opening. He doesn't want it to fray or tear, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. Yeah. And on the, uh, on the hem, you shall make, ready for this? Pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. Uh, a, a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. Well, what in the world is going on there? Well, a pomegranate symbolizes fruitfulness. Christ's death on the cross was not just, listen, not just for the potential of people being saved. The way some people hold their theology, it's like Jesus went to the cross, and while he was on the cross, he crossed his fingers and said, Oh Lord, please let somebody be saved through all of this. He didn't die simply for the potential of saving. He died because as the elect of God, he was paying for our sins so that we could come to him at the time that he ordained. Did you get that? He died to pay the sin debt of every person who would believe, and he did not die in vain. There will not be a shortage whenever we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb where the Lord Jesus said, well, I set out a million plates and there's only 500,000 here. Never going to happen. And there's not going to be a scrambling because somebody made it in that they didn't expect. There's no uninvited guests, are there? This is the feast that he speaks of in his parables. And he is ready and he has made that ready for us. He's not scrambling at the last minute trying to build an apartment on the, the Apostle Paul's uh, mansion so that you could have a place to stay. And he could say, we weren't really expecting you, but come on in. It's all ready and it's pre prepared for us. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he's a good host when he invites you into his home, and he's got everything taken care of. And so when we think about the fruitfulness of his death, we think about Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in, look at this, Bringing many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. They are going to be saved. He is going to draw them unto himself. And they will be redeemed because their sins have already been paid for through his suffering. It's also when we think about being fruitful, we think about our personal fruitfulness. In John chapter 15 Verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, let me just say this. Pruning is not pleasant. And if you go out and you prune a fruit tree that you may have, if that fruit tree could talk, 
It would beg you not to. I need that. I need that. That's important. Why are you taking that away? Don't you want me to bear fruit? How can I bear fruit if you keep cutting my branches off? But the person who is the gardener knows that those extra branches, those unfruitful branches are taking up nourishment that needs to go to the productive branches, to the fruit. So he trims it off. And the trimming off of the branches is not to punish. He's not mad at the tree. And it also is not to get him to bear less fruit, but to bear the maximum amount of fruit and for the fruit to be of good quality. We had a peach tree when I was growing up. And uh, as usual in Oklahoma, we had a late freeze. And that little peach tree, all of the peaches got frozen out except one. And that one peach got all of the nutrients. And we watched that one peach grow. Kind of funny to see one peach on a tree. That peach was the size of a softball when it was ripe. And it was good. We shared it. There was enough to share. Now, some peaches, you see, are just little bitty, you know, kind of what's the, what's the use kind of things. But not this one, because it was getting all that the tree had to offer. It was abiding in the vine, wasn't it? And in the same way in the orchard of Christ, what does he do? Takes away those branches that aren't bearing fruit so that the ones that are bearing fruit and are connected in and abiding in the branch, which is Christ, that they will actually bear more fruit. And Christ said that the Father is glorified when you and I bear much fruit that actually remains. And that's what we ought to strive for. And the pomegranate speaks of the fruitfulness of what the high priest is doing. He's not just doing it for nothing. It's going to bear fruit. Just like the work of Christ will indeed bear fruit. But the bells are also kind of interesting too. Tradition tells us that whenever people would be outside of the Holy of Holies, listening in there for Aaron or whoever the high priest was, they would listen for the sound of the bells. And you know what the bell meant? Aaron was still alive and kicking. It meant that he was still doing his work. It meant that he was interceding and bearing the burdens of the people of Israel and putting the blood, sprinkling it. When you sprinkle, you kind of have this kind of emotion. When that happens, the bells on the robe would ring. It brought joy. Bells are a pleasant sound. They're a happy sound. And this is the happiness and the joy of knowing that the blood has been applied to the mercy seat. But there was something else. Tradition says they tied a rope around Aaron's waist that came outside of the curtain. And if they were to hear those bells kind of crash and clash together, they would pull on the rope to get Aaron's body out of there because they couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies. But when you think about what heaven must be like with the sound of the high priest and those heavenly bells as they jingle and as they peal with a happy sound, and it's a sound of forgiveness, it's a sound of redemption, it's a sound of interception, it's a sound of Christ standing up for us, it's the sound of all of that that you and I want telling us that our Savior still lives and He lives forever and ever and ever. What a pleasant sound. What a joyful sound that we have. 
And then we find that number five, that what the high priest does was something that God accepted, but what Jesus does is fully and eternally accepted by God. No repeats, no going back, no making another sacrifice. But in uh, verse 36 through 39, it says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban, the, the hat, the crown, the mitre that he wore, and uh, do it by a, uh, some versions say, a lace of blue. And when I think of lace, I think of grandma's doilies. But this is more like a shoelace. It's a cord. It's something that can fasten by a cord of blue. And it shall be on the front of the turban. And it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. In other words, take what sinful people have given to the Lord and make it acceptable. And it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be, here's the key, accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen and you shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. Now on the turban, this gold plate that said, Holy is the Lord, or holy to the Lord. The word holy, both in the Old Testament and the New, it doesn't mean some kind of a mystical, priestly uh, kind of thing. It just simply means set apart. Set apart to the Lord. The high priest belonged to the Lord. He was the person of the Lord's choosing, doing the rituals and wearing the vestments that the Lord had chosen for him to wear. And that's the same with Jesus Christ. No other could be our redeemer. No other could fulfill the will of God. No other could pay for your sin. Only Jesus. And Jesus did it for us and on our behalf. And being holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, it reminds us that what Jesus did, there was never any doubt about whether it would be accepted. Why? Because Jesus is not just a person trying his best to satisfy God. Jesus was the person sent by God, set apart by God, and the one who would go to the cross and actually, literally, bear our sins to the glory of God the Father. And his death was holy to the Lord. People looked upon it and said, what a tragedy, some of them, and they wept. Other people looked upon it and they didn't understand what was going on. Why is he being crucified if he's such a great man? He saved others, let him save himself. Others cursed and mocked and spat upon him as he hung upon the cross. But God the Father had a different view of it. As he saw his son dying, the words were holy to the Lord. This is the sacrifice. And Christ has a distinction of being both the priest and the sacrifice that has been declared holy to the Lord. In other words, set apart to God and fully acceptable. You know, when we talk to people about their salvation, are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord? Most of the time they're going to go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, back in 1953, back in 1985, Back in 1992, 
I was at a camp. I was at a church. I was at a revival meeting. Well, that's fine. But let me tell you something. Did you know that the Bible never, ever, ever gives assurance of salvation by pointing back to the past? I'm a living testimony that you can walk an aisle and pray a prayer and go through the waters of baptism and still be lost. Remember my testimony? What is it doing? What, is the, what does the Bible bring us up to? Well, if you have doubts, read the book of 1 John. And it'll help settle that. And one of the tests of a true believer is a te test of faith. What are you trusting in for your salvation? And you know, there are a lot of people, maybe even you, who think, well, I'm saved because I go to church. Well, this is a shortcut to hell if you were to die right now. Won't happen. Some of you think you're saved because of the way you live. And you list all the things you don't do. I don't commit adultery. I don't look at pornography. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't smoke. You know, all of those kind of things that you list as your deeds of righteousness. And yet the Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is as, anybody know? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. And so you don't trust in any of those things. And you certainly don't go back and trust in something that you did five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. That's not really the point. The point is this. What are you trusting in right now for salvation? And do you show the fruit of that salvation. It's an up-to-date thing. If you are saved, you are going to believe now in Jesus Christ, and you're going to bear the fruit, the testimony of that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think about being holy to the Lord, that gives meaning to the rest of the garments that are there. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him <coughs> was the chastisement that brought our peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen to what a writer of times past said. O Christian, look away from yourself with your 10,000 failures and fix your eye on that golden plate. Behold, in the perfections of your great high priest, the measure of thine eternal acceptance with God. Christ is our salvation and he is our sanctification, and that breast piece of uh, holy is the Lord hanging in front of it reminds us that we are secure, not because of us, not because of the prayer we prayed. I used to agonize. Maybe I didn't pray the prayer right. And I read a book on repentance, and then I was scared to death because I didn't remember saying I repent in my sinner's prayer. Well, thank God I'm released from all of that because my prayer didn't save me. The death of Jesus Christ and his burial and resurrection saved me. And he did it wholly to the Lord and it was accepted by God. And my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. 
or even the sweetest sinner's prayer. But I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Can anyone say amen to that? That's where you've got to stand and that's where it has to be. And then we end up by saying this. Jesus Christ as a high priest makes others righteous. It's not just us. And you notice that when we get down to verse 40 through 43, it says, And for Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. For Aaron's sons. Why did he say that? Because the priesthood was going to go on and on and on and on. It was going to reach new generations. It was going to reach new people. It was going to go on into new places, into the promised land and all of that. This is something that Jesus said is going to carry on. This is why we have the Great Commission. This is why we're ambassadors for Christ because Jesus didn't save or intend to save simply us and no more, but to carry it on. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. And we fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Well, that's so true. But the Lord has done something else for us. He has forgiven us of our sin. And like the prodigal son, we have received robes of righteousness. In fact, in Revelation 19, 11, when the Lord returns, listen to this. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now listen to this. And the armies of heaven, that would be us, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You see, our righteousness is as filthy rags when we try to earn it, when we try to perform it, and when we hold it up to God as reason why he ought to accept us into his presence. But praise God, just like he's doing with Aaron's sons, the garments of fine linen, 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 are for those who follow after. And we, when we were saved, were made, as the Bible tells us, a kingdom of priests. And he cleansed us from our sin. He has put the robes of his righteousness on us. And one day we will even make up that army that is in that fine linen that comes back to conquer the world. This is our Savior. This is the one in whom we trust. And if you're trusting in anyone or anything not described by this this morning, you're making a terrible, terrible mistake. Quit trusting in things. Quit trusting in people. Quit trusting in yourself. And put your full faith and trust in the one who is the permanent high priest, the one who fulfills all of this. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ, the righteous one and the one who makes us righteous as well. If you've done that today, bow your heads and close your eyes. If you've done that today, would you say a prayer of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for you? 
If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I'm going to be down here at the front after we dismiss. I would love to talk to you. I would love to share with you my story. I would love to be able to share the Word of God that tells you how you can be born again, how you can be saved. I hope you'll do that. I would love to meet you and to spend some time talking with you. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts now. To the saved, assure them of salvation because of the work of Christ. And to the lost, draw them to you that they might be cleansed of their sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Brother.